Glad you're here this morning. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about our Greater Alliance like family of churches, so we're part of a denomination or a movement of churches, uh, multiple thousands of churches around the world and in our, in our own country. Uh, one of the things that I like about that movement, that denomination, is that we're actually uh, pretty diverse when it comes to many things in terms of how we do church. You could go to an alliance church in a different part of the country. I can think of three or four right now where I'm from down in Florida that would look wildly different than what we just did uh, and what we're doing right now. Uh, and so I, I think that's beautiful. Uh, in, in sort of in the world of theology, right, and sort of the ideas about Christianity or the things about God that we want to study, there's different levels of importance. We've talked about this before if you're part of our church when it comes to certain issues. There are what we call primary issues, things that are of first importance, things that, and, and this is something that kind of is frowned upon to say, right? But there are things, uh, primary issues, very few but very important things, that if you don't hold to these, either uh, put you inside or outside what has been called historic Orthodox Christianity. Uh, and so if you've ever heard or recited one of the historic creeds of the church, it's pretty much those things. Uh, the, the creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, maybe you've heard one in a church service, or you recited one before you got baptized, something like that. Uh, those are basically the very, very early church saying, what are the things that are actually really important? And they formulated these ideas. Now, the history of how those happened is actually really fascinating and kind of like a soap opera, honestly. It's really entertaining. Uh, but those are kind of the primary essentials of the faith. So here's the Apostles' Creed. You've probably heard this before. This likely, this creed probably comes from what somebody would say right before they got baptized. That's where a lot of these uh, formulations. So, but listen to these essentials. It's pretty short. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Okay, God created everything out of nothing. There's one. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So we've got the Trinity already. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is important for today. The Holy Catholic Church, lower C, not Roman Catholic, just universal church. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So those are basically the essentials of the Christian faith. If you don't affirm those ideas, you are self-selecting yourself as outside of what has been historic Christian Orthodox faith for the last couple thousand years. But now, of course, good I don't know if you knew this, but good Bible-believing Christians disagree in good faith on a number of things, and this is why we have so many different kinds of churches, ours included. And so one of the issues that we can and we do disagree on is the way the work of the Holy Spirit plays itself out in the local church. We don't disagree that the Holy Spirit is a person and that he's God. That's an essential. We might disagree on how that looks. Specifically, there's the issue of what many have called speaking in tongues. Uh-oh. Happy Mother's Day. We're going to have controversy. Right? Now, uh, I wonder if you've ever been in a church service or in a room when someone speaks in tongues. And if you're wondering what I mean, you haven't been there. Right? Because if you've been in the room when what I mean is happening, you remember. Okay? I can, and I can tell you as I did last week, that's not my comfort zone. Okay? 
Now, comfort does not inherently equate to right. And that's important. So what we want to do is simply ask, well, what does the Bible seem to teach on this? And how does this apply to the life of our church? So let me just give you permission for something today. Maybe you didn't already know this. But sometimes as a pastor, I sense that there is some weird pressure that some of us feel to like agree with the pastor. And I just want to give you permission. You can disagree with me about this one today. Okay? Uh, now, how you disagree matters, right? Kindness, through the Spirit. But... I just want to give you permission. It's okay to disagree on things like what we're going to talk about today that are not in that primary category that we talked about. Now, it's okay for you to disagree with me on the primary things, but then I want to have more conversations with you and ask you what else do we, do, do we believe together. Uh, and so these things, this thing that we're going to talk about today is what I would say is in the secondary tier. It's really important, really, really important. And churches kind of make their identity on, on this sometimes, but it's in that second tier. All Christians have always, throughout the history of the church, big C, global church, throughout history for the last couple thousand years, all Christians believe in the Holy Spirit, but not all Christians believe that the Holy Spirit continues to work today in the way that we see in the book of, in books like Acts. Uh, and so that's secondary. So the two main buckets, the technical terms, would be continuationists. That's what we are. We believe that the Holy Spirit still works today. Uh, and at the end of today, we're going to have a, a little clinic for speaking into... I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, and then there's cessationists who believe that those gifts have ceased with the death of the last apostle. Both of those camps are Christians. They just believe differently about this issue. So it's a secondary, but hear me, really important. So what we don't want to do is go, well, if it's not primary, who cares? Believe whatever you want. That doesn't really work. We care about this stuff. And what's good to do is to... Think about these secondary issues because they will help you understand and apply those primary issues too. And, and honestly, they'll just help you practice thinking about these things, which is a good thing. So with that being said, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're in week 3 now of this series. So today we're going to look uh, at what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. Oh, thank you. Look at that. Wow. Thank you. Must have must be beating sweat a little bit. Uh, so Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at what it means to be empowered by the Spirit to follow Jesus. And we're going to look at this debated issue that happens in the church. Should we speak in tongues and what does that mean and how does that work? What does it look like when we gather together? And so this particular topic of tongues is going to come up a number of times in the book of Acts. And so might as well just get to it today. So just by way of reminder, let me catch you, catch you up to where we find ourselves in the story of Acts, which is really the story of the church, the birth of the church. So before this book, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we see is that Jesus is, is God become human, God become flesh. He lives without sin. He goes to the cross, dies for your sin and my sin. He was buried. Three days later, he was bodily resurrected. And we celebrated that on Easter, especially a few weeks ago. He rose from death. He overthrows the power of sin and death forever. And then as we start the book of Acts, what we see is that Jesus appears for about 40 days. And he spends time with his disciples. And then, of course, in Acts 1.8, which is, if you want information about our church and our movement of churches, back on the black table in the lobby, there's a sheet there that will tell you that we are an Acts 1.8 family. So this verse is really important. It's the beginning of the book we're just starting to study Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them that after they've waited in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit would come. And Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And why does he say that? Because you will be my 
witnesses. And so what we know is that these disciples, also all those who would believe, right? So you and me, if you follow Jesus, we will be witness to his life, death, and resurrection and his kingdom that's coming. And according to Jesus' instructions, we will be witnesses to the end of the earth in Acts or in Matthew. And what I like to remind us is that we're the end of the earth. This, is, this was the end of the earth when Jesus said that back then. And so Jesus then ascends into heaven and we read at the end of Acts 1 that for 10 days they studied, they prayed, and they were under the faucet, if you remember that metaphor. They were placing themselves under the faucet. We said, the Holy Spirit, if you want to think of his work like a faucet turning on in your life, you can't make it turn on. doesn't matter how many songs you sing and how much fog you put in the room and all that stuff. That's cool, though. You can't manufacture the Holy Spirit. But what you can do is place yourself under that faucet. And when it turns on, there you are. And so that's what we see in Acts 2. The faucet turns on. And so we see Jesus' promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit being fulfilled here in Acts 2. And this is important. Uh, just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism in Luke's gospel, remember who is also the author of Acts, to anoint him and to appoint him for ministry. So here what we see is Jesus sending the Holy Spirit on his people, you and I and these disciples in the text, so that they can, we can follow in the ministry of Jesus by the power of Jesus. So don't miss that parallel there. So Acts 2, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a blue one around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's some paperback ones in the lobby. would love for you to take one of those. Acts 2, chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So basically we've got like what we're doing right now, except we know from the text there's about 120 people in that place. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, Notice a couple things about the language here. Luke uses the word like, okay? There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's pretty important because Luke, what he's trying to do here is describe to the best of his ability something that's pretty much impossible to describe. This is beyond his ability with words to describe. This is supernatural. It's a miraculous event. We, we can't explain this. And so maybe you've experienced something that's tough to put into words. So what do you say? It's things like, well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like it was like that, if you know. Uh, and so we see that throughout the scriptures with a genre we call apocalyptic literature sometimes, uh, where we're describing things that are like beyond our ability to grasp. And this is what Luke is doing here. Verse 3, and divided tongues of fought as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here's the timing of this event. This is Pentecost. This is a Jewish holiday. Because don't forget, these are all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All the disciples at this point are Jewish. And so the timing is Pentecost. And before this, there's a major holiday called Passover. And this celebrates God's deliverance of his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt through the blood of an innocent lamb. They would put it on the doorpost, which of course foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God through whom we are set free from our slavery to sin and death. And so they celebrate Passover. And then 50 days later, which is where the pente and the word Pentecost comes from, 50 days later, it's Pentecost. So this is 50 days after the Passover. They're in Jerusalem obeying Jesus. And these first believers in Jesus are gathered. They don't even really understand this quite yet, but they're gathered as 
the first church, about 120, and the Holy Spirit just shows up. He descends on them. And even that language, he doesn't descend. He just shows up in the way that he shows up because he's not in the sky, right? He's God. He's just there. And so he comes to empower them as he came to empower Jesus so that this church and, and us by extension might be on his mission by his power. And so Luke describes this power to be what? Like a mighty rushing wind, and he describes it as fire. Even over these last couple days of uh, nonstop rain, good grief, right? Um, there have been some kind of significant gusts of wind once in a while. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. But wind, I don't know if you, I mean, wind is powerful. It's like always more powerful than you think it is. You see a little breeze in the trees and you think, oh, I'll go outside and set up this thing. And then the wind just knocks it over with no trouble, right? Anytime we try to do like an outdoor event here at the church, we set up a little tent. It's like two mile an hour winds just destroy everything. And so wind is really powerful and the Holy Spirit's power is like that. He fills the believer. He lifts us, if you will. He brings life into us. And we can't create this power on our own. The power to live on mission with Jesus, the power to obey what he has commanded us. We can't do it on our own, so we need the Holy Spirit. And so Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit's power is like a powerful wind, but he also says that the Holy Spirit is like fire. Now, what does fire do in the positive sense? Right? I know fire, the metaphor falls apart when you start thinking about wildfires, but what does fire do in the positive sense? Well, it brings warmth, it brings life, it brings heat. And then the Holy Spirit is, is also like that, our lives and our world they're cold they're dark they need something and so the holy spirit shows up and he illuminates uh jesus to us and he warms our hearts and we love him our hearts burn right now i love that luke's two best attempts by the power of the holy spirit don't forget in writing this and in being inspired to write this his two best attempts at describing the power of the holy spirit are two things that are kind of indescribable wind and fire like if you watch a candle burn, it's pretty tough to put into words what's happening there. You can see the effects of it, but it's tough to put into words. And wind is the same way. And again, this is a reminder to us that we can't control or really contain the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're thinking that makes me feel a little uncomfortable, yeah. Because the Holy Spirit is God. Now sometimes, like we're going to see here, the Holy Spirit's work is going to work loudly and publicly. But he's not limited in working that way. And this is one of the things we want to work our way through the confusion of. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows up like a mighty rushing wind and fire and like a hurricane. And sometimes he shows up and gives you just enough peace to make it through that meeting you're about to step into at work. Right? Or moms of little ones on Mother's Day, he gives you just enough peace. Please, Lord with this child, right? That's Holy Spirit power. So what we're going to see here and throughout the book of Acts is that Jesus' mission requires that you individually and then you, we corporately to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't be who Jesus wants us to, who he made us to be, and we can't do what Jesus has called us to do unless we're filled by the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not a force. He's not an idea. He's a person. And so this kind of gets us to that topic we talked about. Well, the first one of, of the two that is kind of here in the text. 
And that is, maybe you've heard of this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you have heard that, and you're like, oh, uh uh-oh, here we go. Right? Now, this is, I'm going to tell you one of those secondary issues where we can have some disagreement and still be in fellowship together. And here's what I mean. It seems that, to me, there is a singular baptism in the Holy Spirit where the believer at conversion receives the Holy Spirit. Okay? That that's a singular event. And yet also, in the New Testament, there appear to be multiple fillings of the Spirit. So what do we mean? Ephesians 1 talks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a one-time event kind of language. But what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts and other places like Ephesians 5, we're going to see this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. One baptism, but multiple fillings. So let me just give you a word picture that I like to use. You are God's child. You are walking with him. You have no doubt that you are God's child. You know he loves you. And you love him. And the picture is you're walking with him hand in hand down the path of life. And in this picture, he is your parent and you are a small child. This is the normal experience of the believer. You walk with God, right? In the garden, the song would say, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. You know you're loved, you feel close to God. But sometimes you let go of his hand. And you wander off a little bit, and you get a little nervous, you get a little down, you get a little scared, and you call out for him, and he comes and scoops you up, and he hugs you, and he reminds you how much he loves you, and you're filled again, and then he puts you back down next to him, and you keep walking together. You never stopped being his child in that picture. But then there's other times when you're walking with him, and I don't know if you've had this experience with God, where he just scoops you up just because he wants to. And he, you don't really have like, Maybe you didn't know the reason to begin with, but you see it looking back. But he just kind of scoops you up and he loves on you just because he wants to. Both of these, I think, are, are a helpful kind of picture of what this filling is. And in both of these pictures, you were already God's child and you were already with him. That wasn't part of the equation. And so what we're about to see, I think, in Acts here, chapter 2, verse 4, is one of these filling. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's the other controversy for, the, for today. Uh, this is why I like preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's fun for me to just bring up controversial topics. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so, speaking in tongues, right? Speaking in tongues. Many believers have broken fellowship over this. And I would say sadly. Churches have split over this issue. In fact, in our own movement of churches, there has been a splitting of two different movements. Uh, Entire denominations have been formed because of this issue. So let's get into it just a little bit. Acts 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So this is a feast. Everybody shows up in Jerusalem, and there are Jewish people who are from other nations around the world. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now that word language is important. This is kind of the crux of the issue. When the Bible talks about tongues, sometimes it's talking about the thing in your mouth that makes sounds. Sometimes it's talking about an angelic heavenly language. But other times, like here, that word tongues is is talking about a known 
earthly language, like French or Spanish or whatever. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, this is an interesting little comment here. It's interesting to me because it shows us that the assumptions that we make today are very similar to assumptions people made always. Galileans were not known as scholars. They're known as blue-collar kind of working-class folks, farmers, fishermen. And so the assumption is they probably haven't traveled as much. They haven't had as much opportunity for education. So how the heck are they speaking this language? Right? How in the world do they speak this other known language? And so the point here is that this is a miraculous moment. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Gentiles who had converted to the Jewish faith, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue or language the mighty works of God. So I love this. Here's what you see here. The Holy Spirit's going to overcome barriers so people hear about Jesus. That's what he's going to do. The first, lo- the first barrier is location, right? The Holy Spirit overcomes location on this day by waiting until the day of Pentecost when there's a huge crowd gathered. And if you look at a modern-day map, they're coming from Iran, Turkey, North Africa, Crete, Rome, Arabia, Egypt, Syria, across the Middle East. Across kind of the known world, people are coming to this place. And so the Holy Spirit, he just, he, he's working his plan. So these people are all coming together, and the Holy Spirit waits until they're all in one spot. And if they meet Jesus, and if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they return home, they return home as what? Witnesses. Missionaries. And what we see is that the church spreads, and eventually, here we are in the United States with the gospel. So not only does the Holy Spirit overcome location, he also overcomes a language barrier in a very miraculous way. Now, he overcomes a language barrier when missionaries go to language school, too. Don't think that's not got Holy Spirit power in it. But in this instance, he does it in a very unique way. The language barrier is a tough one. Some of you in this room, English is not your first language. And praise God for you being here. I loved what one of our international workers, Dan Lawrence, said when he was with us. He said, if you hear an accent, it's an act of bravery. If you hear an accent in your language, it's an act of bravery on that other person's part. And so, uh, language barrier is a tough one. Just yesterday, I officiated a wedding for folks who speak Spanish as their primary language. And I can speak a little bit, but not enough to do something like a wedding. And so we had translation, and it just makes it hard. It makes it take a lot longer. And, and, And that's a hard barrier to overcome, and that's the case here, but... The Holy Spirit shows up, and even though they've come from different nations and speak different languages, somehow they're hearing in their own language. So let's talk about speaking in tongues. There are some, I'm going to give you two extremes here, right? There are some who are like, speaking in tongues is demonic. It's a bad thing, don't do it. There's others, though, that say that speaking in tongues, if you don't speak in tongues, then you might not even be a Christian. And so, which one is it? Those are kind of the extremes. Ideally, what we want to do is study the Bible, 
and, and figure out what makes sense for us in our time while being faithful to what it seems like is happening in the text. It seems that when the Bible speaks of tongues, it does it in kind of two big buckets, two primary ways, the private way and the public way. And confusion happens when the public goes private and the private goes public. So what we're going to do is I'm going to jump from Acts, which is kind of the historical record of the church. I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians here, and that's where some theological explanation happens. So if you ever want to read about the gifts, you can go 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to chapter 14. That's really helpful. Uh, and, and so the gift of tongues is one of those gifts. Okay. Now what we need to remember is that sometimes you're going to experience God in supernatural ways, as we've said. In ways that are unusual and in ways that are unique and uncomfortable. As a Christian, expect sometimes to get uncomfortable. Okay? And what this should do is humble us. God's not an idea that you can wrap your mind all the way around. He's God and we're, he's creator and we're created. And, and he is a person who we are in relationship with. And so what we see in Scripture are two primary issues, again, when it comes to the gift of tongues. The first is a private, kind of unknown, heavenly language. And if you're like, this is getting weird, I'm with you. I didn't grow up in a church that did this. I'm with you. Paul talks about this language, though, in 1 Corinthians 13. Apparently, the angels communicate with God and with one another in a language that's a heavenly language. It sounds like God's kingdom kind of has a language. Just like the nations of the earth have primary languages, so the kingdom of God maybe has a language. And so what we're dealing with here is the miraculous, the supernatural, the beyond our ability. This is a glimpse into how things work in God's presence with the angels. So think about how amazing it is that we actually get a little glimpse in our scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul distinguishes, though, between public and private uses of what we might call spiritual gifts. A list of these, you can find them in 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. We've done a little bit of work on this in the past. Now, Paul tells us that some of these gifts build us up personally and privately, like a prayer language. But then he says that some of these gifts, when they're used publicly, are only to build others up. And so that's what we want. We want a private, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus as Christians. But we also want, and hear me, a public, congregational, corporate, passionate relationship with Jesus together. We want both those things. And that's what Paul is talking about. So there's this private, unknown, heavenly language for prayer. But what we don't believe, and I want you to hear me on this, what we don't believe is that those who have this particular gift have more of the Holy Spirit than any other believer. Some would say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't even have the Holy Spirit. And if you're not familiar with, with the baseball farm system, uh, let me just explain it to you a little bit like this. In professional baseball, there is single A. Well, there's more than this, but there's single A, there's double A, there's triple A, and then there's the show or Major League Baseball, whatever you want to call it, the big leagues, right? And, and sometimes this topic gets communicated in such a way as to say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're kind of like double A or triple A. You didn't make it all the way yet. You're not quite in the major leagues. And I just want to tell you, that's not what, what we believe. Some of you might say, oh, this is actually one of my gifts. 
Maybe you're thinking like, Pastor, I've never told you this, but I do pray in like tongues privately. Awesome. Love it. I'm, I'm happy for you. We see it in the Bible. I affirm that. But if you don't have the gift of tongues, and just as a side note, as far as I can tell right now in my own prayer life, I don't have this gift. I've prayed for it, but it's never happened. If you don't have this gift, it doesn't make you any less of a Christian. It just means that you are gifted in another way. It doesn't mean you're not gifted. It means you have a different gift. One of Paul's favorite analogies for the church is that the church is like a body. It's made up of different parts, but they all work together. God has chosen to gift his people in a variety of ways to work together to ultimately accomplish his mission. And it's a beautiful thing. And I always want to be inviting you, if you feel a giftedness that you can use to build up this body of people, do it. Let's make space for that. If there's something that you're gifted in that you're like, I don't see that happening at our church, come talk to me. We'll figure out a way to make space for that to happen because I want all of the gifting we can get in our church activated. And so if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, praise God, but you need to hear. Don't judge other people who don't have that. Don't look down on someone else because they don't share the same gift. Because let me tell you what, some of us in this room have the gift of administration and thank God for them because I don't. And if I was administering every little thing, we wouldn't be here probably. Okay? So we need all the gifts. And so what we see in Scripture, again, are two primary uses when it comes to the gift of tongues. The first is this private, unknown, heavenly language. And the other is a public, earthly, known language. And what we see in Acts is that it, it seems to be used for evangelism here. This is what we just read about the word here for tongues could also be translated languages. Acts 2.8. And, and how is it that we hear, these are people hearing about God, how is it that we hear each of us in his own what? In his own language. We might say the phrase in his own mother tongue. We use that language, right? Mother tongue, meaning your native language, the language you started speaking as a baby. And so that's, a, that's different than the language of angels and that private prayer language. That's an unknown heavenly language, but here we have a known earthly language. This is the Holy Spirit overcoming the earthly language barrier in a miraculous way. And again, let me say, the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, can be on display like this, like we see in Acts, but it can also be on display when like, I have a friend in Germany who has finally finished all of her language study and feels like I can speak this other language fluently in order to bring people to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was empowering all of that, for sure. Now, those two specific uses of tongues, isn't that controversial? What the controversy and confusion is, is when the private use of tongues ends up in the public church gathering. This is where the confusion comes in. 1 Corinthians 14. If any speak in a tongue, now listen to this distinction. If any speak in a tongue or a language... Let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Now, to me, what's happening here is it seems like Paul, because of my experience being in rooms where I, my speaking has to be translated into another language, I think he's putting both of these things in these same guidelines. So to me, yesterday, leading a Christian wedding ceremony, he's saying, hey, if you have to do it in English to a bunch of Spanish speakers, make sure there's a translator so they can understand and in the same way, if you have the gift of tongues, 
make sure there is someone to interpret. So let's say you've got a private prayer language of tongues, and all of a sudden we're together, we're meeting. It's small group, it's this, what's happening right now. And you say, man, I feel like God really wants me to speak, and he has something to say. How do we know how that should work? Well, we go to Paul's instructions, two or three at the most, and he says one at a time. I've been in rooms where like everybody just starts speaking at once, and it's kind of chaotic. We go to Paul's instructions, and there's an orderliness when it comes to the gathering of the church. So two or three at the most, an interpreter, one at a time. Because if you're saying something, and nobody knows what you're saying, how are you building anybody up? How also are we to know if what you're saying is wrong, and not from the Spirit? And so if there's no interpreter, then I think the, the, the kind thing to do is to enjoy your spiritual gift at home, privately. Pray that language. So, so think about it this way. All of us do things in private at home that we don't do in public, right? Some of you are like, what is he about to say? <laughs> right? Let me say it this way. How many of you have things you, you do in private, again, that don't work in public? I'm going to tell you a story that will hopefully make you awkwardly laugh. When I was in college, I was part of a church, a lot like this church in Florida, and one of my friend's dads was named John. John was a great guy, helped out in our student ministry, joked around a lot. He was like another dad, kind of, right? Uh, but sometimes John was a little too comfortable in the church offices, a little too comfortable. One time, right after church was over, for some reason, and get ready for the awkward, some reason, John decided that he really needed to clip his toenails on the desk of the secretary, it, like the secretary's desk at church, right? What are you thinking? Now, is it wrong for John to do that? No, but not there, right? And, and so there's a little bit of Paul saying, look, if you want to have your private thing and make it public, understand that it's not always going to work and it might lead to confusion. So, okay, two or three at most with an interpreter under some spiritual leadership. You can't just do whatever you want when the church gets together. That's, that's not how our stream of church works because we think that's what the Bible teaches. There's an orderliness that's required when we gather so that we're edified in order to fulfill our mission of glorifying Jesus by making disciples. And when we gather, our goal is not to be flashy, but to just not be distracting. Like, let me give you just an example from today. I went out of order in the service a little bit, and that's why that prayer wasn't in the right spot after that song. So order matters, and what happened is all of us were a little, what? Distracted by that in the moment. And it didn't have to be that way if I simply would have looked at my order of service. Okay? Now, please don't hear me discrediting the gift of tongues. I'm certainly not. Again, just like I don't discredit the other gifts that I don't possess. Paul had the gift of tongues, but Paul also said, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others to edify them, to build them, than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so what's the point? You might be personally connected to Jesus in that unique way, but you might use it wrongly and actually push people away from Jesus. But what if when we gather, we can't hear about Jesus because everyone's just saying whatever they want to say? Or, or there's all kinds of distractions. When we gather together as a church, like we are right now, Right? This isn't church. This is the gathering of the church. 
But when we gather like we are right now, we're not in the same kind of setting as you are when you pray at home. Think about the rooms in your house. There's certain things that you do in certain rooms that you don't do in other rooms, right? And I'll let your mind figure out what I mean. And we have certain places in our homes that are meant for guests to be welcomed and invited into. We set up a room just for that, right? And in a similar way, the life of a church has metaphorical rooms, so to speak. And this room that we're physically in is a metaphorical room where we always want to make sure that visitors, those who are seeking after Jesus or just maybe walked in here on accident one day, right, that don't know Jesus, that they are welcome and that the Holy Spirit is able to teach them through us about Jesus. So it's not about the tongues. What we don't want to do is elevate any one gift of the Spirit over another. This is about people hearing about Jesus. But let's look at what happens when people do hear about Jesus. Verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So when the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus is revealed, some people receive it. We're going to see a huge moment of that next week. Some receive Jesus, but others do what? Not only reject, they mock. So Christian, when you're evangelizing, when you're sharing your faith, when you're loving people, just understand that that's part of it. And don't hold them personally accountable to that. Continue to love and to share Jesus. That's just a normal response to the gospel. Some receive, some reject. These people are crazy. They're drunk. Christianity makes no sense. I'm not interested. Leave me alone. And so my question for us this morning is not primarily do you have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and let's do a class. And that, those might be good things. But my question for us this morning is have you received or rejected Jesus? That's the question. Don't get distracted in your Bible by secondary things like tongues. The big idea is this. The Holy Spirit is absolutely committed to breaking through any and all barriers that might stand between you and Jesus. The fact that you're in this room this morning is another evidence that he is breaking through those barriers. Or maybe you're watching this online or you're watching this later, not even live, and the Holy Spirit is using technology. Everyone needs to hear and respond to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is empowering those of us who are children of God by faith and sending us out from gatherings like this so that people who are where you live, work, and play would hear that God in Jesus is reconciling them back to himself. He's not holding their sins against them. And so we say, empowered by the Holy Spirit, be reconciled to God. That's what it's about. That is, as Paul would say in another place, that is of first importance. The gospel of Jesus is primary. So Acts is the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as we've said, and he wants to work through us as he has worked through people for thousands of years in the history of the church to accomplish this primary mission of reconciling and redeeming sons and daughters back into relationship with himself by faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time when we've been able to gather. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being present with us in the way that you're present with us when we gather 
which is a little different in the way that you're present with us when we're alone, and yet we know that you're always present with us. And so we thank you for that, and we ask for your blessing as we go out from this place, as we uh, celebrate with our families and our moms, and as we honor them, we ask that you would give us opportunity to, to not only be empowered by you, Holy Spirit, but also to be effective witnesses because of that empowerment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.